So I'm going to speak about practice today. Uh, Buddhism seems to me to be a religion of practice. And I say that because it's allowing us to realize what is already there. We already have the compassion, the kindness, the wisdom in place. It came with our human birth, but we haven't realized it yet in our everyday life. And I think Buddhism allows us to do that. So there are three kinds of practice that I'm gonna talk about today. One is meditation practice, one is precept practice, and one is the four Brahma Viharas, or uh, a wisdom practice, you might say. So when I came to Buddhism, I started with meditation. I didn't plan on becoming a Buddhist. What I wanted to do was I wanted to meditate and, and see what that was like after reading all these books on meditation and talking to people about meditation. I wanted to see if that would allow me to uh, gain something or at least get rid of something. Um, as it turned out, I didn't gain anything, but I did get rid of uh, some of my greed, some of my hatred, and some of my delusion. So that was good. So there are two kinds of Buddhist practice, theoretically, that uh, allows us to um, transcend and realize uh, there's something special about our life. There's mindfulness practice and there's concentration practice. Both are found in the Eightfold Path. So I started with concentration practice. I used the counting of the breath to um, lead me into my meditation uh, practice. Now, there's something called the four jhanas, J-H-A-N-A-S. And, and those have to do with the different levels of concentration meditation. So the first level of concentration meditation has applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The second level has three characteristics. Those we've gotten rid of applied thought and sustained thought. Now our mind simply rests on the object of meditation, which in my case was the breath, and we have happiness, we have, uh, we have bliss and we have equanimity. Now, the reason I pause there is because there's a subtle difference between bliss and happiness. Bliss is more of a physical response. Happiness is more of a mental response. And then finally, the, the, the most rarefied level is balance of mind or equanimity. The third level of jhana has two characteristics, which would be happiness and equanimity. And the fourth jhana has one characteristic, which would be equanimity or perfect balance of mind. Um, now, equanimity and indifference are, are, are two different uh, things. So we don't want to become indifferent. What we want to have is a balance and not choose sides and stay in the middle 
which I think the Buddha was appropriate in saying that his path is the middle path. Now, the idea of, of resting on breath, using breath as a meditation technique, um, was interesting to me because at first I couldn't keep track of the breath because I kept getting distracted by mental thoughts. So I started to count the breath and I would tether my mind to the sensation of breath and go from one to 10 and 10 to one and one to 10 and 10 to one. As I got better at keeping track of my breath, I then let the counting go and simply was aware of the sensation of breath. I realized that the counting disturbed my meditation practice because counting uh, is composed of concepts. And if I wanted to have a subtle, peaceful mind, I had to let go of all the concepts, even counting my breath. So once I was able to simply rest on the sensation of breath, I also realized that sensation, physical sensation, is always happening right now. So I had come to the present moment experience of my life with no past and no future, simply resting in the moment. Well, the gong would ring, the concepts would come back, the peace that I was generated in my meditation practice would soon be gone, and it was back to normal. But the practice continued, and the idea with the kind of meditation practice that I was doing was simply to take rest in the peace of a mind that wasn't being distracted by concepts or thought in order to go back into the concepts and thoughts and, and see them in a new way, a more subtle way, realizing that I didn't necessarily have to be every thought I had, that the mind's job was simply to think. And my job as a meditator was to choose the thoughts that would enable me to have a better life and offer more service to the world. So if I had a thought of generosity, that would be a good thought to react or respond to. If I had a thought of greed or hatred, that would be a thought that I want to avoid. Now, the idea in avoiding those thoughts is not to suppress them, because when you suppress them, they even get stronger. You've heard the old adage, uh, I don't want you to think about pink elephants. And so all you can think about is pink elephants. The idea is to simply allow the thought to arise, exist, and die. Every thought has a time span. And given enough time, every thought finally fails and goes back to where it came from. And the next thought will take its place. So we can pick and choose once we're aware of our thought process. And that is what I found in the practice of concentration meditation. Now there's mindfulness meditation as well. The mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects, mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of sensations. And, and, and that seems to be the predominant practice 
for a lot of Buddhists in the West to go into mindfulness. And it's even being converted into a kind of therapy where people who have issues and want to work through things can do mindfulness meditation and the psychologist or the psychiatrist will be your, your meditation master and lead you through the different stages. And, and that's fine, but, but Buddhism was never meant, I don't think, to be a psychology uh, or a, a therapy. I think it was meant to be a religion. And there's a subtle difference between a religion and a therapy that I'm not going to go into right now. But I've always viewed Buddhism as my religion and my practice. So we have mindfulness of the, of the body, mindfulness of sensations. Quickly, I'll say there are three kinds of sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Simply being aware of what sensation is occurring now, mental or physical, would allow us to be in a meditative state, a mindfulness meditative state. And, and that awareness then can be used to view the world and view our place in the world. Okay, so my practice started with meditation. Then as I continued to meditate and started to take Buddhism more seriously, I found out that there was another practice that was necessary to be a Buddhist. So I was a bit hesitant in taking the second practice because I wondered if I could hold them, the precepts. And, and I realized that I didn't need to hold them 100%. I needed to practice holding them 100%. And of course, practice allows us to fail. That's the great part about practice as opposed to perfection. Perfection does not allow us to fail but practice does. So the five precepts, I will practice not to take life. I will practice not to take what is not given. I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I will practice not to speak unskillfully. I will practice not to consume intoxicants. So those are the five practice precepts that, are there, that I then started to hold after my meditation practice and with my meditation practice. So now I've got two kinds of practice. I've got meditation practice and I've got precept practice. Now, the precept practice is, is to allow us to live in the world in a skillful way and cause less suffering rather than more suffering. And if you're a, a fan of, of the news, you will see that a lot of people say right now that... Uh, it's not my choice to do this. It's not my choice to do that. I want freedom. I want freedom of choice. Well, if you've been meditating long enough, I think you've come to the conclusion that there really isn't much freedom. Um, have, have I ever had a, a, an original thought? Well, you know, so far I haven't. I'm hoping before I die, I'll at least have one. But most of my thoughts uh, are based on other thoughts and life experience and education and peer group pressure and social media. And I can go on and on and on, but where's my freedom of thought? It's, it's not there. Do I have freedom of choice? Well, I think in America, we do have freedom of choice, but it's consumer freedom. Do I want the blue one or the red one? 
And of course, the new Matrix is coming out soon. So we'll all get a chance to see the new blue one and red one. But that's the choice we're given. Do we have, you want the blue one or the red one? And we, we're not given a big freedom of choice to work with because it scares people when each one of us has too much choice. So depending where you live, what you do, how you think, what school you've been to, you may have more choices if you have more money. You may have less choices if you have less money. You may have no choices if you have no money. And that's sort of how it works. So where does this freedom come from? The Buddhism says, I teach a path to freedom. What kind of freedom was the Buddha talking about? He was talking about the freedom from suffering. I will teach you how to be free from suffering. But that's the only freedom I can teach you. All the others are going to be up to you and may not be readily available. So here we have this wonderful idea of I can be free from suffering if I practice meditation, if I practice the five precepts. So let's just go through the precepts quickly to sort of understand why that might be a freedom. I take the training precept not to take life. So what does it allow me to do? It allows me to have less choice. Now that may not sound like a big freedom to have less to pick from, but if you follow the precepts, you're pretty limited in how you're going to act and how you're going to think. And that limitation gives us freedom from the complexity of having far too many choices. But those are not real choices. Those have been manufactured for us. Okay, so I have a problem. I have a mouse and I need to get rid of the mouse. And I could kill the mouse. They have kill traps and that would take care of the problem. But now you've taken the first precept not to take life. And, and though you may be able to rationalize that taking a little mouse life is not a big deal, karma is with you in everything you think, say, and do. And there's always a, a response from karma if you're unskillful or if you are skillful. So in taking that little mouse life and being unskillful, you'll have karmic ramifications. Okay, so how do I get rid of the mouse? Well, sometimes Buddhist temples will have cats and cats will take care of the mouse. Now, they don't even have to kill the mice. Their cat dander is a signal to the mouse that death may be looming and maybe the house next door would be a better place to reside than the temple with the cat. Now, years ago, years ago, I was reminded yesterday by uh, uh, one of our residents named Paul, years ago at IBMC, we had a terrible pigeon problem. There, were pigeon, there was pigeon poop everywhere you went. And I thought to myself, how can I get rid of these pigeons? For a while, I started to spray water. 
I even threw little pebbles at them and they would fly away. And a half hour later, they'd come back. And, and people would say, why is that Buddhist throwing little rocks at the pigeons? Didn't he take a precept? And then we, we, we started to get cats. We didn't buy them. We didn't go out to find them. They found us. And after a while, and after a few cats, the pigeons were no longer here. They were living something else. So the problem was taken care of without having to kill the pigeons or kill the mouse. And granted, not killing takes a little bit more time and takes a little bit more thought, but the payoff is good karma rather than bad karma. Okay, second one, not to take what is not given. Oh man, you know, I, I'm watching the news and more and more cars are being stolen or parts are being stolen and people are walking into department stores 10, 12 at a time and just taking as much as they can take and walk out the front door and blah, blah, blah. And you know, there are a thousand stories about taking what is not given. And, and you might say to yourself, well, you know, theoretically, if I was a philosopher, I would say that nobody really owns anything anyway. It's all one big illusion. So what's the harm in taking somebody's car if they really don't own it anyway? Well, you know, the problem with living in Los Angeles and the problem with living in America is every time we put our money down to get something, they give us a receipt. And that receipt allows us to think now that we own it and we have to care for it and clean it and insure it and watch out for its, its good because we don't want anything to go wrong with it. And if you have a car and you use your car to go to work and somebody takes your car, it's harder to get to work and be on time and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so the idea of not taking what is not given is not causing any more suffering in the world. There is so much suffering in the world. The first noble truth, life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Number one, because we don't own anything. And number two, everything we think we own will be eventually taken away from us and the culprit is impermanence and change. And I'm going to myself right on. When I first read The First Noble Truth, it made perfect sense to me. Absolutely. So the second precept, not taking what is not given, is important because it reduces suffering and doesn't increase suffering. The third precept, no sexual misconduct. This is really difficult for most people because we're all driven by this instinct to replicate. And we're replicating all the time, or at least trying to replicate all the time, and devising methods in order to replicate all the time. And a lot of that stuff just causes so much suffering. And after all, we have 7 billion people. We've been really good at replicating. And, and, the, and, the, and the deal is, how many more people is this planet going to gonna hold. Now, the, the few cats that we have on our property right now have all been fixed. We've taken them to Fix Nation. They've cut the ear. 
they've um, made them sterile and now they can't replicate, but they can still have a life. Back in the 1960s in India, they, there's a story about people waiting for the train and they were offered a free transistor radio if they would get their, if they would be neutered, if the men would, you know, give up their ability to have children, they could have a free transistor radio. It didn't work very well. There's, you know, a billion people now just in India. Whoa. So it's something we have to worry about. And, and uh, if you're young, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. If you're older, it's sort of a hassle. And when you get really old, it's not necessary anymore. You know, keep it simple. Enjoy your life as a single person. And, and realize that even if you don't have children this lifetime, somebody else made up for it. And, and you can always rest assured that until the planet finally dies, we're going to have plenty of people unless you know, uh, we get into the climate thing and nuclear war, but we won't go there today. So anyway, no sexual misconduct, keep it simple, keep it clean, keep happy, keep it joyful. And if you do decide to have a wife or a husband and children, be a good parent, bring him up, meditating, bringing up following the five precepts, it's going to benefit them as well as everybody else. Okay, number four. Number four is not to speak unskillfully. How easy is it for us to speak in an unskillful way? And unfortunately, once the words go out, they can never come back. That's why audio recordings are so vicious. Just, you know, talk to Richard Nixon about that. Man, that stuff just doesn't go away. And it's being recycled all the time. As soon as the story is found that's appropriate to recycle it, it'll be recycled. And, and people don't forget either. People might forget all the good stuff you say, but they're not going to forget the bad stuff you say. So it, it behooves us. It, we need to be encouraged by ourselves every day to give a little pre-thought before we say something important. And even more pre-thought before we say something that's not important at all and we don't think has any value and everybody will forget it and son of a gun, they don't. So being mindful of what's being said and karma, speech karma is, is there. We have, we have mind karma, speech karma, body karma. Once that goes out, bang, speak skillfully. And number five, don't get high. I know it's difficult. Everybody's getting high. So many people are dying now because they really want to get high. They want to get higher than they've ever been before. And they end up dying. And you just go, wow, you know, it's not important to get high. This world that we live in, this reality that we carry with us every day, this is one big, giant hallucination. None of the stuff in our life is really happening the way we think it does. We don't need to enhance that. It's already a trip. We've been tripping our whole life, you know, and, and, and what we're thinking has nothing to do really with the world around us. 
So why make it even more difficult? And, and uh, so at our center, when we give the five precepts, Reverend Karuna was very kind. She said, you know, we, if you can't take a precept, you shouldn't take a precept. But we're going to modify the fifth precept for you because our center is uh, a, a, a little more skillful in the way it presents its precepts. So we're going to tell you that it's okay to consume intoxicants, but not to the point of intoxication. And, and when I first heard that from Reverend Kroon, I just had to smile because there's a famous blues song out there. And it goes like, I ain't drunk. I just been drinking. And there you go. So if you can not get intoxicated and not get high and be social in the way you share uh, your intoxicants, that's good. But, you know, after you meditate for a while and after you follow the five precepts for a while, you realize that, that any kind of intoxication is a big hindrance. It doesn't allow you to be mindful and aware in the same way that you are when you're not drinking. And, and you may do something just once while you're intoxicated that will change your whole life forever and not in a good way. You know, uh, when I was a police chaplain in Garden Grove, so many times we get young people in there and, you know, they would do something really stupid because they were high. And, and then there was court and sometimes there was jail time. And then sometimes it's on your record now and you go find work and you got a felony and blah, 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 blah. And if they had just taken 10 breaths, just breathed in and out 10 times before they did whatever they did, the outcome most likely would have been different. But in the heat of an emotional uh, high point, anger, hatred, things are done, things are said that can't be taken back and your life could be changed forever. So just stay sober and think of it as just one big hallucination and you don't have to get high. You're already there. Okay, number three, the third way to practice. Following the four Brahma Viharas, they are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Now we have all this stuff already in place, but it's just buried really deep and we need to stimulate it. We need to, we need to water it. We need to fertilize it. We need to make it grow. So let's start with loving kindness. In Buddhism, we have a meditation called loving kindness meditation. And, and I think people get confused about what loving kindness meditation is. Number one, loving kindness is an intention. It's not an activity. This is according to me. So we have the intention of loving kindness and it is raised many ways. It's raised through, through uh, compassion and sympathy and understanding a particular situation. And we want to be helpful and we want to be kind and we want to make life a little bit better for the person or persons or ourself. And with the intention of loving kindness arising in our mind, we then can go to the next activity, the activity of compassion. So it's not enough to want somebody to be in a better place. The compassion activity allows us to sort of, I don't want to say manipulate, but encourage change 
in the world that will reduce suffering. So we have the intention, the mindset of kindness, and then we have the voice and body of compassion. And, and for instance, you can feed hungry people or feed hungry animals, or somebody needs to go to the hospital, you can take them in your car to the hospital. There's so many ways to practice compassion, the activity of compassion that will make a difference in our life and also a difference in the lives of others. So we have the intention of love and kindness. We have the activity of compassion. And then we have sympathetic joy. Now, this is the toughest one of all. This is so hard. I have found this to be almost impossible sometimes. But to appreciate the success of others, to appreciate the good fortune of others, and make their good fortune your good fortune, and make their success your success, without wishing it had been you. <laughs> and that's the deal. You know, somebody wins $400 million on the lotto, and you go and say to yourself, you know, they're just going to waste all that money and they're going to be poor again in two years. And if I had won that $400 million, I could change the world in a positive way. And why didn't I win? And why did they win? And that is not sympathetic, Joy. That is just being human. And we're trying to be human in the best way as we practice Buddhism, not simply human but the best way a human being could be, because that's what the Buddha did. The Buddha was a human who became a perfect human being, perfect in the sense of being human, not perfect in the sense of being godlike. So the sympathetic joy takes work. Now, you might start with your family. If you like your family, if you like your siblings, if you like your parents, and they and something good happens to them, like maybe their anniversary, you know, chime in, be part of that. Say, okay, wonderful. I'm so happy that you've been married 50 years. How the hell did you do it? But whatever it is, can you be participate in it in, in a equanimous way without feeling bad that it's not happening to you? Sympathetic joy. And finally, the fourth Brahma Vihara is our old friend, equanimity, which came from our meditation practice and is now being transferred into a practice in the world. Can we have equanimity? Can we have perfect balance? And, and I have found one of the best places to practice equanimity is in Vaughn's supermarket when you're waiting in line and people aren't able to find their card or people can't find their money or people need to leave the line to get just one more thing that they forgot. And there you stand waiting to pay for the three things that you're buying at Vons today. And of course you have a busy life. You've got plenty to do. You have people to see, you have people to be. And how can I just simply stand here and waste all this time? Okay, can you do it? Can you waste the time? 
Can you be in the present moment, in the line moment? Can you be part of the line without having to direct it or change it or be in charge of it? Can you simply just be one of the line people and when it's your turn, smile and pay and leave and go on to the next thing and go on to the next thing. And generally the next thing in LA will be traffic. And there you're sitting in traffic and you're behind five people that are trying to turn left and you just want to go straight and you just go, wow, wow, come on. And so this practice is available to us every day of the year, the practice of equanimity. It's a perfect practice for Los Angeles with the millions of people that live here and the millions of people that are in a hurry to get someplace. And, and can you just be the one person who's not in a hurry? Can you be the one person who allows the other person to enter the traffic without honking at them and being angry with them and giving them sign language? Can you be that person? Well, that's the practice, the practice of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Can we practice that on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis? And what will be the outcome? The outcome will be we have triggered all those important things that were lying dormant, that were there because of human birth, but never exercised or actualized. And now we're starting to see that, that we don't need to gain anything from the outside. We simply need to exercise what's already on the inside. And ultimately, eventually, whatever your practice is, whether it be Mahayana or Theravada or Vajrayana, eventually what will occur is a transformation of mind. And we call that transformation of mind, enlightenment or nirvana. But it's transformed because of the inside, not because of the outside.